Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 2, verse 2. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 2. Last time, we began to look at the day of Pentecost, the day the church was born. We saw that the disciples of Jesus were gathered together in unity, waiting on the Lord. We will continue to learn about the day of Pentecost as we resume our study in Acts chapter 2, verse 2. Pastor Gibb will begin reading in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven. The Holy Spirit came suddenly, abruptly, unexpectedly, the kind of an abrupt happening that jolts and startles a person. You see, God was dramatizing the supernatural and the precious significance of this event. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now it is interesting to compare Pentecost in the Old Testament and Pentecost in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Pentecost occurred 50 days after the Passover that set them free from Egypt, and it occurred on the exact day that the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai. The Passover lamb was slain in Egypt on April 14, 1491 B.C. Fifty days after that, they came to Mount Sinai. That would be Pentecost. And that is something to note because in the New Testament Pentecost, it occurred 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. In the Old Testament, Pentecost celebrates the birth of a nation. In the New Testament, Pentecost celebrates the birth of the church. In the Old Testament on Pentecost, the very first Pentecost, after the first Passover, 3,000 souls were slain, Exodus chapter 32, because of their disobedience to God. At the first Pentecost in the New Testament, 3,000 souls were saved in obedience to the call of God, Acts chapter 2. In the Old Testament, Pentecost was introduced in a mighty way. It says that there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mount. And in the New Testament, there were also mighty signs. Verse 2 again, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. You see, this wasn't something that these people worked up. This was the work of God. And I think we do damage to the work of God when we try to whip people up into some kind of an emotional frenzy in order to receive some kind of spiritual experience. I was reading this week of a traveling evangelist who always put on a grand finale to his revival meetings. And when he was to preach in a church, he would secretly hire a small boy to sit in the ceiling rafters with a dove in a cage. Toward the end of his sermon, the preacher would shout for the Holy Spirit to come down. The boy in the rafters would release the dove. And it was really very, very effective. Well, at one revival meeting, however, nothing happened when the preacher called for the Holy Spirit to descend. He again raised his hands and he shouted, Come down, Holy Spirit. Still, there was no dove. The preacher then heard the anxious voice of the little boy calling from the rafters. Sir, a yellow cat just ate the Holy Spirit. Shall I throw down the yellow cat? Well, on the day of Pentecost, they didn't have to whip themselves up. 
God just did it. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. The sound was from heaven. That is from God. You see, it came from God's activity, not man's activity, not from the activity of natural causes upon earth. It was supernatural. God created sound for this very special occasion. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. The sound was like the rushing of a mighty wind. It was not wind, but a sound like the deafening roar of a blast of a strong wind, like a hurricane or a tornado. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, God spoke to Job through the wind. Elijah expected God to speak to him through the wind. And in the New Testament, Jesus likens the Holy Spirit to the wind. He said to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, The wind blows where it wills. You can hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the Spirit of God. Wind is a symbol of invisible power. And it is also interesting to note that both in the Hebrew and in the Greek language, the word for wind and the word for spirit are identical. In the Hebrew, it is the word ruach. It is the word for breath or wind or spirit. And in the New Testament, in the Greek, it is pneuma, from which we get the word pneumatic or pneumonia. We still use that term, pneuma, for breath or wind. Verse 3. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Notice that the audio came before the visual, the sound of the wind before the sight of the fire, because the word of God always precedes the work of God. Man says, if I can see it, I will believe it. God says, believe it, and then you will see it. And notice that these are not literal flames of fire, but it is as of fire. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Divided tongues, they were cloven, that is, they were parting asunder. The idea is that a single tongue appeared and then began to split and divide itself, resting upon each of the disciples. The tongues were not fire, but like fire. That is, they only looked like fire. They were a brilliant, luminous, fire-like substance created by God to dramatize the moment of the Holy Spirit coming upon his disciples. Now, the tongues of fire appearing over each one probably has association with John the Baptist's prophecy that Jesus would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire in Matthew 3 and verse 11. Now, the idea behind the picture of fire is usually purification, as fire is used as a refiner to make pure gold, or as it can burn away that which is temporary to leave something which is lasting. And this is an excellent illustration of the principle that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not just for abstract power, but it is also for purification and for purity. Now, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit rested on God's people more as a nation. In other words, the Holy Spirit rested upon the nation of Israel. But you notice now that under the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit rests upon God's people as individuals. You see, baptizing and the power of the Spirit came upon them as individuals. The tongues of fire sat 
upon each one of them. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That is, as the Spirit prompted them. It was not the Holy Spirit speaking through them. It was not like they just lost control and started babbling all of a sudden. He prompted them. He gave them an utterance. The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues. And because of this, there is the idea that some teach and espouse that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you must speak in tongues. And the evidence that you are filled with the Spirit is that you speak in tongues, and that is the sole evidence. And so they say, if you don't speak in tongues, then you have not been filled with the Spirit. Now, it is an evidence, but there are many others. For instance, you go to Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word with boldness. So they were filled with the Spirit, and they preached the gospel boldly. Then we read of Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9.18. Listen to what it says. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and scales fell from his eyes. Now, would you say that the evidence then that you're filled with the Spirit is that scales will fall from your eyes? I mean, it's right here in the Word. No, listen, there are a variety of evidences. It is not only tongues. Throughout the book of Acts, there are many different evidences of the person filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of the sole manifestations is not power anyway. It is not tongues. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, it is love. 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm nothing. So, do you have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit? No. But you see, if you say that you do, if your system says that you do, then you will do whatever it takes to get other people to speak in tongues. And there are pastors, and there are teachers, and there are denominations, and there are leaders who do that. They believe that you have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Spirit, so then they try to teach you how to speak in tongues. And they come to you and they say, I don't know if you've ever been in a service like this, but they'll come to you and they'll say, well, have you spoken in tongues? And you say, well, no, I haven't. Well, I'm going to teach you. Just say, hallelujah, hallelujah. And just say it again and say it again. Say it faster and faster. And pretty soon you're mumbling it as fast as you can, and they say, that's it. You got it. You got it. It's ridiculous. Or it's like the two kids who were both Christians, and one of them said, let's get our friend to speak in tongues. And the other kid said, well, how do you do that? He said, just kick him in the leg as hard as you can. And so he kicked him real hard in the leg, and the little boy said, oh, my knee, oh, my shin, oh, my knee, oh, my shin, oh, my knee. Oh, brother, you've got it. You've got it. That's how ridiculous it is. No, you cannot teach people to speak in tongues. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived at this time, tells us that oftentimes the city of Jerusalem, which normally had a population of 150,000, would be swollen in numbers to well over one million. So the city was packed, and the suburbs were filled, and out on the hillsides there were many camps of pilgrims. And it was to this multitude that this miracle was directed. 
They were not Gentiles. There might have been a few because it will say later that there were some proselytes from Rome. But they were Jews. 99.9% .9 of them were Jews, but they had been brought in from all parts of the earth. Verse 6, And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. The sound that is mentioned here in verse 6 does not refer to the sound of tongues. I mean, that would hardly be loud enough to attract the attention of the whole city and the countryside, all of the multitude. But it is the sound as of a mighty rush of wind that brought the people from all over the city. It is the exact same word that occurs in verse 2, where it says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. When they heard this, they rushed together into the temple courts to see what the sound was. And so it's almost as if God turned on a great siren in Jerusalem, a wailing banshee sound, and thus called them all together. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, are tongues always in a known language? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul refers to the tongues of men and of angels. Because 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 deals specifically with the manifestations of the Spirit, the implication seems to be clear. When people praise the Lord, worship the Lord in tongues, it may very well be a language unknown on earth, but known in heaven, the dialect of the angels. And so tongues can be known or unknown, the language of men and the language of angels. Verse 7. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. What they heard when they got there was this strange sound of certain men and women, evidently peasants by their dress and by their accent, from Galilee, who were speaking in over 16 different languages. And it was quite evident that these people were not educated. I mean, it was difficult for any to believe that these peasants could have learned these languages because they were from Galilee. Verse 11 goes on to say, We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Though they were speaking in different languages, they were saying the same things. What they were declaring was literally the magnificence of God. They were praising God. You see, they were not preaching the gospel. They were speaking how great God is, and they were telling him how great they thought he was. They were worshiping and praising God in these remarkable languages. That was the phenomena that arrested the attention of the great multitude as they came pressing into the temple courts. Now notice the reaction. Verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? First, they were amazed. The word in Greek is a word that means literally to push out of their senses. It is exactly what we say when we use the modern phrase, it blew their minds. 
That is exactly what it says. It blew their minds as they heard this phenomenon taking place. But it also says that they were perplexed. The word means literally thoughts running through their minds. They were perplexed. They had various thoughts running through their minds. That in turn gave way to two expressions that are recorded of this crowd, which are very interesting to note. They indicate the two divisions that always occur when the presence of God is manifested and the Holy Spirit begins to work. When the human mind is confronted with the new thing that God is doing, it reacts in one of two ways, as is the case when the disciples of Jesus were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. First, they said to one another, whatever could this mean? That is, they began to inquire, what's behind this? What is the purpose of this? What's going on here? Why did this occur? I mean, this is interesting. What is happening here? And that represents the group of open minds that are always ready to investigate further before coming to any kind of a conclusion. But there was another group who immediately dismissed the phenomena with the infantile reaction of mockery and ridicule. And we find them in verse 13. Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. They looked at the disciples and they said, yes, they're drunk. That explains it. They've been getting into the new wine and they dismissed it with mockery and ridicule. There is always a reaction when the Holy Spirit begins to move. And it is my prayer as we go through this study in the book of Acts together that your reaction to the teaching and to the moving of the Holy Spirit will be one of inquiry and anticipation, and excitement, and openness to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life and in the life of your church, and that you will be filled to overflowing by the Spirit of God just as they were on the day of Pentecost. We now have the first sermon of the Apostle Peter, and it is an intricate masterpiece of organization. And it is also a laboratory exercise in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can go through the four Gospels and watch Peter shoot off his mouth. I mean, we joke about foot-in-mouth disease when it comes to Peter because it seems that he always ended up jumping in without thinking. But also, this is the guy who Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. All the rest of you are going to run away, but Peter, you're going to deny me. Satan desires to sift you like wheat, and you're going to blow it. And when you are restored from doing that, then you will strengthen your brothers. Now, this is the same Peter who is to stand up, and he's going to preach the gospel in a dynamic way. You say, well, what happened to Peter? Well, first of all, John 21 happened to Peter. Jesus restored him and recommissioned him. And then secondly, he was baptized in the Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he is a different Peter. He is now a lean, mean preaching machine. And boy, can he ever do it. I mean, he's got a grasp of Scripture, and he is very, very bold. Now that he is filled with the Spirit, it is amazing to see this rough, tough, vacillating, impulsive fishermen weave a sermon with the elegance and the skill which you will see unfold here. And it is a great example of true biblical preaching, true 
expository preaching. And what is interesting about this sermon is, is that it is not about the person of the Holy Spirit. Now that comes as a surprise to many people. The sermon is, out, is about a person, all right, the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 14, 14, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me and he will speak of me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. And when the first sermon was preached under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's about Jesus and it glorifies Jesus. Peter's sermon is not about the Holy Spirit. It is about the person of Jesus Christ. And you know, that is what we are to do. We must emphasize Jesus Christ in all of our messages. Whether you preach from the Old Testament or whether you preach from the New Testament, whether it's verse by verse or topical or whatever it might be, Jesus Christ should always be the center. We need to always keep the main thing the main thing. And you know, whenever you talk to people or witness to people about Jesus Christ, and they try to divert you with questions, and they do that, don't they? They say, well, what about this? I mean, what about that? And how come this? Go back to Jesus. He's the central issue. I mean, what are you gonna do with Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, he said, what do men say about me? Who do men say that I am? And after they told him, Jesus said, and who do you say that I am? Keep it centered on Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Well, that brings us to verse 14. And it says, but Peter standing up with the 11. And so Peter stands and he preaches to the crowd as a representative of the whole group of apostles. Also, just as a footnote, teachers sat, heralds stood. Peter is a herald. He is going to announce something. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Notice how alert Peter was to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He immediately stood up and began to speak. Now, seminary students are taught that there are three basic rules of public address. Stand up, speak up, shut up. Peter never got to the shut up. I mean, this crowd broke in upon him before he reached the conclusion, before he could even give an altar call, as we will see later. He never got the chance to finish this message, and that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to see when a crowd responds as positively as that. What an amazing thing. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Peter says, come on guys, it's not even happy hour yet. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Now the Orthodox Jews had a custom of not eating or drinking until after 10 o'clock, which was when the morning prayers were finished. And so Peter is simply trying to say, hey guys, it's pretty unlikely that this many people would be drunk on a feast day like Pentecost at nine o'clock in the morning. Now literally and exactly what the Greek said was this, not as you suppose are these men drunk. Not as you suppose 
are these men drunk? In other words, they are drunk, but not from what you suppose. It is not new wine that makes them drunk. They're drunk with a different wine, the new wine of the Holy Spirit, not distilled spirits, but the dynamic spirit. Now, we should never think that these Christians were acting in any way as if they were drunk. The idea of being quote-unquote drunk in the spirit has absolutely no foundation in the scripture. The comment, as we saw earlier, they were mocking when they said that. This has no reality or basis in reality. And the believers, it shows in the scriptures how they were reacting. They weren't acting like they were out of control or they had lost control mentally or physically. Listen, the fruit of the spirit, the Bible says, is self-control, not loss of it. Now, Peter's message here is first of all addressed to their question in verse 12, whatever could this mean? And I think that that's important, that messages answer the questions that are on the minds of people. Unfortunately, there is a lot of preaching today that's so totally irrelevant to anything. And you go in and you say, well, thanks for the information. I really didn't need it, and I didn't understand it after I got it. But Peter here was addressing the question, whatever could this mean? And the answer is, verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. More literally, in the old King James, it says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he begins to give them a scriptural basis, you see, for the phenomena that they have just observed. And that is really important. You are always on dangerous ground when you are seeking spiritual phenomena for which there is no scriptural basis. Because whenever you get into the area of spiritual phenomena, people are always going to ask questions. They're always going to say, what does this mean? I mean, what is this? What is going on here? And if you are practicing some kind of spiritual phenomena for which you cannot give a solid scriptural basis, then that means you have gone outside the parameters of scripture. And it is very irresponsible to do that. It is irresponsible for televangelists or pastors or churches or whoever to promote spiritual phenomena without scriptural foundation. The things that go on in the church should always have scriptural explanations behind them. But for some people, they end up basing their church behavior upon experiences and not upon the Word of God. Did you know that that's what the cults do? Take the Mormon church, for example. They will send their representatives to your door and ask you to believe them based on an experience, upon a quote-unquote burning of the bosom, as they put it, you're supposed to get from reading the Book of Mormon. No, God wants you to judge the truth of what they say, not based upon some experience, but based upon God's Word. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gibb teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's way.